Jesus, we do thank you. Thank you again for the chance to be together, for our chance to worship you on this day as we think about all that you did, all that you accomplished, we know that you did it for a purpose, Lord, and that is the purpose we will explore tonight as we think about your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, give me the words from your spirit to speak tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Aaron Tyler. It was awesome, as usual. Well, tonight, as we, uh, I don't know if I could call it continue on in Revelation, but we will be there. Um, I did something I don't usually do, which is I actually am doing a, an Easter sermon. I'm not just continuing on in my series. Um, and that was kind of decided last minute. So you'll explore with me as we go through this. Um, but each week in Revelation, I've told you I'm going to start with a martyr story because it gets us in the right framework for understanding why this book is a book of comfort. And tonight we read the most comforting passage of all. Not just the most comforting passage of Revelation, but the most comforting passage of the entire Bible because it's the end towards which we're headed. Tonight we're gonna go through Revelation 21 and 22. I'm calling tonight the importance of the resurrection because the the event around which humanity is centered is actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that event is is so important to who we are as a people. I mean, it cannot be overstated how important it is. And so I actually don't have a, a, a PowerPoint for you tonight, but we're just gonna go through this. And we'll be mainly in two passages, but we're gonna focus on Revelation 21 and 22 and go through those two chapters. I know we're, we're jumping the gun. We're only on chapter two, the end of chapter two. We're jumping to 21 and 22. But first, I'm going to read these. I chose this martyr story. We're jumping way ahead in the martyr stories, too. We're now in 1975. So we've gone way far from 300. (laughs) This is a much more modern story. But I thought it was appropriate as I read. uh, It has to do with Easter. And so I chose this one. This is in Czechoslovakia in 1975. When Viktor Korbel entered the Czechoslovakian army, he took with him his Bible and Durer's drawing, the praying hands, saying, this will remind me what I should do every day. The Easter Monday after he entered the army, his parents had an underground church meeting in their home. Suddenly the doorbell rang and two army officers entered and said, we've brought your son home. He was in a coffin. They had not been notified that he was dead. Victor's sister sat down at the piano and played Jesus, lover of my soul. The parents wept over the coffin and said, thy will be done. Later, they received a letter from one of Victor's army friends. He wrote, we shall never forget the last days we spent with him. He used to read to us from the Bible, and he spoke about God. On Good Friday, he asked us to go with him to church. We all said that we would be glad to, but that we needed permission. I'll try to get it, said Victor. 
The officer got mad at him. We could hear his cursing. He accused Victor of poisoning us with religious propaganda. We were not allowed to leave the barracks. Next morning, Victor was found dead in the courtyard. He had been shot. Shot on Good Friday. Killed like his savior. Brought to his parents on a Sunday, that Easter Sunday. I'm going to read one more to you. You get a bonus martyr story because I love the ending of this story. It's Romania, 1975 as well. Florea. Florea died in Gerla prison in Romania. He had been beaten until both arms and legs were paralyzed because he refused to do slave labor on the Lord's day. The communist would not take him to a hospital to be treated, but left him in his prison cell where there was no running water, no bedding, nothing with which the other prisoners could help him. They had to spoon feed him, but they did not have a spoon, so they used their fingers. Yet he was the most serene and joyful among them. His face shone. When the other prisoners sometimes sat around his bed brooding about their sorrows and complaining that their future was so bad, he would say, if the outlook is bad, try the uplook. Here's my favorite part. This is why I wanted to read you a second one. After one of the prisoners was released, he went to see Florea's family. He told Florea's nine-year-old son about his father. And that his father had told them he wanted his son to grow up to be a good Christian man. (laughs) The boy replied, I would rather become a sufferer for Christ like my father. (laughs) Easter Sunday is precious. Hi, baby. Easter Sunday is precious because it reminds us, reminds us of the story of the whole Bible. And the story of the whole Bible is the story of God and humanity and them together in relationship. And if we look back at the very beginning of the Bible, we go to the very beginning of Genesis, there's a very specific thing going on. We're starting, we start at chapter one with the background of God creating humanity. He must create a place for them. And so he does. He makes all of creation and then he sets in it a garden. And in that garden, he sets man. And there's a reason. And the reason is that God wants a people. And he wants to be their God and he wants to dwell among them. And that's why in chapter two, even, even at the very beginning, God is there in the garden. He's with his creation. And specifically, he's with humanity. So that by the time you get to chapter three, when it seems like no time has passed at all, and Adam's eaten of the fruit that his wife Eve gave him, and he's hiding, it says what? That the Lord was walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, when the breeze was passing through, God is there with his people, with Adam. And of course, the great tragedy of Genesis 3 is that Adam hides from God. 
Adam who is dwelling with the very presence, the manifest presence of God hides from him. He wants nothing to do with him at that moment because he is full of shame. Eli, shh, relax, buddy. Listen to what I'm saying. Eli, Adam's full of shame because of his sin. In Genesis 3, you remember reading about that? And so what happens is man hides from God and the relationship is broken. The relationship is broken. And everything in the Bible, I'll tell you, I've said this from the beginning when we went through Genesis, if you've been here for that series, from the very beginning, that is the story. That's the theme of the Bible. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. Every single story revolves around that. God is looking for a people who he will be their God, and he wants to be with them. He's not the God high up in heaven, totally far away from them. He wants to be present with his people. And so when you get to the end of the Bible, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, which we're gonna read tonight, you'll see something new. And it looks like it's brand new, but it's been the plan from the beginning. Because it looks like Eden. It looks like Eden again. Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth Those same things that God created in the beginning, there's now new ones. Why? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there is no longer any sea. Does that mean there's no water? No. In Revelation, what is the sea? The sea is chaos. It's the demonic power. What comes out of the sea in Revelation? The beast. The beast comes out of the sea. All evil is done away with. This is a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there's no longer any chaos, no sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, This is the climactic proclamation of the entire Bible. This is it. Revelation 21, verse three. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying what? Behold, the tabernacle of God, God's dwelling place is among men. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give 
to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. What's the water of life in John's writings? It's the Holy Spirit. John consistently uses water imagery to talk about the Holy Spirit. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost, he who overcomes, the overcomer from the letters, he who overcomes will inherit these things and what? And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So then one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So in 21, we have this picture of new heavens and new earth. It's all new. And then after seeing that, John, he's had this wonderful vision. An angel comes and says, let me show you the city. Let me show you the bride. And the the picture zooms in out of the new heavens and new earth to the new Jerusalem, the new city, the city where the people of God dwell. And it says, the angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then he goes on, he measures the city. He talks about the beauty that the streets are pure gold, that there's 12 foundations made up of precious stones. And then in verse 22, he says this, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Why is there no temple? What was the point of the temple? That's where God's presence dwelt. There is no longer any need for a temple. Why? Because The people are already in the presence. God and the Lamb are the temple because all the people are swept up in their presence forever. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp, the lamp that offers light to the city is the lamb. Jesus is the light that illumines the city. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal. Where does that river of the Spirit come from? 
It came from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Father and the Son are pouring out the Spirit on, the, on the, all creation without measure. Why? For either side of the river there was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Skipping down to verse seven and behold, this is Jesus speaking. I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. He's told to not seal the words of the book, but to offer them to everyone. It says, let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Behold, this is Jesus again, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I love this, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And then here's how the Bible ends. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. Now, that is the vision that John had of what we're headed towards, of where we will end up. Those two chapters lead us to the story of being in the fullness of God's presence. Not just the spirit dwelling in us, which is wonderful beyond belief and beyond compare, but the fullness of the triune God, seeing the lamb, seeing Jesus, seeing the father, being in the fullness of the presence of God forever for those who are righteous. And now I told you, this has to do with the resurrection. This is an Easter sermon. What's the point of the resurrection in that story? If the point of the story is I will be your God, you will be my people and I will dwell among you, Jesus fits into that story because he is the one that makes it possible for us to dwell with God. What was said of Jesus? What was he called when he came and he was born as a little baby? What did it say his name would be? Emmanuel, 
God with us. Why does that matter? Because the plan was for God to dwell with his people. And when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, he's paying for sin so that we can what? Be saved. Yeah, but be saved to what? Is it just some loose idea of heaven? Whatever ambiguous idea that looks like to float on clouds or whatever picture people have? No. It's so that we can be in the presence of God. That he can be our God, we can be his people, and that we can dwell with him. And when he pours out the Holy Spirit, he does that so that we can dwell with God in us and among us and lead us towards that reality of Revelation 21 and 22, starting now. But all of that is only possible with the resurrection. And here's the truth. It's different in different traditions, but our tradition, the Protestant tradition, has never done resurrection well. We can be so cross-centered that we forget that the power of what God does is resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He goes on to talk about how he's not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. And yet it was God's grace that brought Paul in. Now he says this in verse 12. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Vain, what's that mean? It means it's empty. It's vanity, it's smoke. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify that God raised Christ. And we have testified against God if he did not raise him. If in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, what's the value of your faith? Here's what Paul says. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. See, without the resurrection, Jesus' death bought us nothing. You're still in your sins. Because the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus is new life. It is new creation. 
Why does the New Testament constantly use the language about Jesus as the firstborn from the dead? All of that language of priority and importance because a new creation started with him. There was no new creation. There was no new heavens and new earth. Nothing was new. It was all old. It was all of the old system until Jesus was resurrected. And when Jesus was resurrected, new creation began in that moment because he was new. The firstborn of the new creation, Christ resurrected. And it is on that reality alone, alone that we can pin our hopes that we too will be resurrected. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been resurrected. We have no hope. Our faith is worthless. In fact, he goes on to say in the chapter, if, if the resurrection isn't true, we are to be pitied most of all people. More than anyone else, we should be pitied because we believe in a falsehood that is costing us our very lives. That is not true. That's what Paul is saying. If there is no resurrection, but the truth is that Christ was raised and his intention was to make that story, that that vision that I just read to you from John in Revelation 21 and 22, his Goal was to make that a reality. And Jesus is the one who made that possible. Jesus is the one, because he was resurrected, that made that possible, that that vision could one day come true, that we would be his, uh, we would be his people, he would be our God, and we could dwell among him. And without that, there's no hope. So my reminder to you for this Easter is to remember Remember always, not just on Easter, not just on this day, but every day that the resurrection matters. It's the foundation of our faith having weight, having value, having substance, because without it, we're still in our sins. Resurrection is Jesus. Remember that vision in Revelation 1 of the Son of Man? That vision is of the resurrected Jesus, who he is now. That vision of Jesus, the son of man, is how Jesus is now. You know, First John says that Jesus is still at work. You know, Jesus' work is not done. It says that Jesus is before the throne of God, interceding for us still as the son of man on his throne reigning over a kingdom that is still being brought to bear, that is still being brought to pass. It's been inaugurated, it's started, but we're still awaiting its consummation, which is his second return. And then we'll finally get to see, we'll finally get to picture, to live out Revelation 21 and 22. But without that, without that, there's no hope. Without this precious moment, the hinge of history, the hinge of history is the resurrection because old creation, the old things, they still exist. They haven't passed away yet, but they became obsolete 
and new creation began with Jesus' resurrection. And today we celebrate that. My encouragement, my comfort to you is to remember we do worship that's that savior that was talked about in the beginning of Revelation, the one who was alive and died and is now alive forevermore. We worship that same savior today, 2,000 years later. Remember his resurrection because in it is the power of new life and in it is our salvation. Tyler, you wanna come close us up?